Happy Easter. Who's had an Easter egg already? Uh-huh. After the service this morning, we have morning tea and we have some lovely hot cross buns, which you're supposed to have on Friday, I think, aren't you? Well, they're left over from Friday, so you'll enjoy those. <laughs> no, they're not. They're fresh. And you would have got a little Easter egg on the way in, which we hope you enjoy. The evidence inside and outside the tomb. Until the Lord Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, Easter Sunday, nobody had ever thought of having a worship day on Sunday. Up until then, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the Jews used to worship on Saturday, the Muslims worshipped on Friday, and the Romans used to worship about two special days during the month at some point. So a weekly worship service on a Sunday began with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And we've been doing it for now for almost 2,000 years. Uh, and in fact, in about 10 years from now, either 2000, 2030 or 2033, depending on which view you have, it'll be exactly the 2,000 years since his resurrection. And there's going to be some very significant worldwide celebrations, particularly the Alpha Course is going to do something internationally, I know that, and there will certainly be others. It's also interesting, isn't it? <clears throat> What's the name of today? Sunday. Who named that? The Romans. Isn't it interesting? Appropriate. That's the sun's day. Not that bright thing in the sky day. Sun, S-O-N. Sun day. Just one of those coincidences or providences of history. Um, it's also Sunday. I like Sundays. It's a busy, one of the busy days of the week for me and for Charlie and I guess for most ministers and pastors and, but also for many of you as well. And of course, every day is busy for mothers, isn't it? Say amen. Yeah. Um, but it's the beginning of the week. It's the first day of the week. It's the, a new thing is starting. And that's particularly uh, one of the truths that comes with the resurrection. There is new life and a new beginning. Bearing in mind that the first 300 years of the Christian church, they met on Sunday, but Sunday was a work day. The Christian church used to meet at 4 a.m. and 10 p.m. Morning or evening. <laughs> it's early, isn't it? Because they worked. Many of them were slaves. They worked all day. And so they, the believers came together very early or late into the evening. On this first Sunday, we learn that Christianity begins, and it begins in a cemetery. That's usually where everything else comes to an end, but our faith begins at the tomb of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Just before I pray, just to get this in your head somehow, you can't be too dogmatic about it, but uh, the Romans and that culture divided their days up into watches, you know, like a three-hour watch. So from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. was one watch, 9 p.m. to midnight, midnight to 3 a.m., 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. and so on, in periods of groups of three hours. So at some point after sundown on Saturday and before 6 a.m. Sunday, the Lord Jesus rises from the dead. And my guess is sometime between midnight and 3 a.m. there is the earthquake. The angel of the Lord descends and he rolls the stone away. In fact, he doesn't roll the stone back. He lifts it up 
and he carries it away and he drops it away from the tomb. If you read the, the accounts very carefully, you'll read that it is removed from, it's away from the tomb. It's not just rolled back in its groove, but it's lifted up. And then Matthew tells us, and he sat on it. Then he looked at the guard, the Roman guard that was on duty then. There would have been 16 of them in shifts of four for their three hours. It won four guards per shift, per watch, if you like. And the angel looked at them and went, boo. That's in Matthew's Gospel. You can check that out later. And if you see it there, you come and see me. And the guard run away, scared stiff. I mean, they collapse initially, but then the angel leaves and then they recover. And sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., the women come to the tomb. Somewhere in there. It's late. Uh, they haven't slept well that night because they've got a job in their minds that they want to do. They get up early. I think it's John who tells us uh, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, they head off. Mary probably got there first and then she wasn't alone. The others joined her there. Maybe they met up somewhere and travelled together. We aren't given those sorts of details to it. But the storm we're going to look at this account, the evidence, both inside the tomb, first 10 verses or so, and then the last eight or nine verses, the evidence outside the tomb. One is to do with the mind, the evidence of the grave, the tomb, the grave, and then there is the experience of what happened in the garden to do with the hearts. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you certainly for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, that all things are now different because of him and that we're different and that we have been changed and we are being changed increasingly to be like him. We thank you for your word and for this wonderful record of this wonderful truth. We've heard it so often that we can become quite familiar with it and that might become, we might become over-familiar with it. So Lord, I pray that you might continue to surprise us and help us never to lose the wonder of the resurrection of Jesus and all that that means for us. Help us to think this morning and to listen to you particularly and to take from this service that which you intend for us to receive. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. I told you about Sunday worship, the first Sunday, done that. The stone. Here is the evidence, firstly, of the grave. <clears throat> the stone was about one and a half to two tons, some say three. Um, they're just, you know, guesstimating that, but it's very, very heavy. It would run in a groove to cover the entrance to the tomb. We know that, the scriptures tell us that. And it was intended, of course, to stop grave robbers, which were very common at that time. In fact, the Roman emperor issued a decree about punishing people who removed stones from tombs or who uh, robbed graves or disturbed bodies or anything like that. It's on record that Claudius, a little bit later, 50 AD, so it was still going on. Um, but this particular tomb of the Lord Jesus not only had the stone in front of it, but it also had a seal, a Roman seal on it which basically was guaranteeing that nobody would open it. To break that seal meant that you would have been pursued by the Roman authorities for the remainder of your life until they found you, and then they would kill you. They would execute you. That's what it would mean to break a Roman seal. And these, of course, had these guards stationed there. They would have been, if you've seen the movie Rambo, there were 16 Rambo-type characters. Trained, 
soldiers. One centurion, 16 soldiers, uh, 15 other soldiers. They would have been in groups of four, as I said, and they would have stationed themselves in front of the tomb, in front of the seal to protect it. They were under very clear instructions and orders, not just from the Jewish authorities, but from Pilate himself. For them to go to sleep or for them to be negligent of their duty meant that they would in turn complete the sentence of that which they were guarding. They would be killed. You know all of this. I'm just reminding you of it. So here is this Roman guard, this seal, and the women are on their way. On the previous night after the Sabbath, Saturday night, they have gone to the shops, down to Woolworths or Coles or whatever they had in those days, and they bought their herbs, their spices, their aloes, their myrrh, all this other stuff, extra bandages and stuff like that. They had seen what happened on the Friday afternoon with the guys, how they had done a quick job. They hadn't finished it. And nor had they done a good job. The women were going to go and do it properly. Well go over that again in just a second um, so they'd gone to the shops the Saturday night it's a restless night they get up early Sunday morning between 3am and 6am and they meet up somewhere and they go out of the city, they're brave ladies A, it's dark B, there are th- tens of thousands of people, strangers in Jerusalem around Jerusalem, it's Passover time unleavened bread festival so there are lots of people around sleeping probably but they're wandering on the streets at night by themselves because they're driven by their love and passion for the Lord Jesus and wanting to complete the task. And so, I don't know if they're talking on the way or if they had lanterns or whatever, but they start talking about who's going to roll the stone away from us? Maybe the guards. Maybe. But when they get there, shock, horror, there is a major security breach, isn't there? Not only is a stone not there, It's not rolled back, it's away from the tomb, but the soldiers are not to be found. It's a shock. What's happened? Well, Mary, and she wouldn't be alone, but Mary initially looks in the tomb, sees that the body is gone, adrenaline kicks in, and what does she assume? Grave robbers. They've taken his body. She leaves the other women there. She runs back to the house of John. John's family had a house in Jerusalem. we think, and Peter is probably staying with him. Mary runs to them as quickly as she can and she tells them, um, they've taken, they have taken his body, don't know who they are, and of course she's wrong in her conclusion. She saw nobody and she draws the wrong conclusion. They have taken his body and we, so she's not by herself, and we don't know where they have laid him. Peter and John, when they hear this, they get up and they go to the tomb. John doesn't tell us this, but when Mary had gone into the, uh, to the city to see Peter and John, then the women go into the tomb. That's where they see the two angels, and the angels tell them, he is not here, he is risen. And then they go out. And Mark tells us, they left both filled with joy, but also with fear, and they didn't tell anyone. Mark chapter 16, verse 8, and that's where Mark's gospel ends. And I think what Mark is referring to is that when the women left the tomb, there is a time frame where they don't tell anyone. They're processing and they're thinking. They have mixed emotions. They're both delighted that he's risen from the dead. The angel said so. They didn't see the body, but they're also fearful. We are women. We, have, um, we won't be greatly respected. Women could never be a witness in a court of law. 
Women were always pushed down and under the thumb, in, particularly in those days. So they've got a dilemma. We're going to go and we're going to say we saw angels and we're going to say that he is risen. They're not going to believe us. So they're wrestling with that. All that's going on in the background, in the garden, somewhere. We're not given... We're just given this broad outline of things to do. Meanwhile, and this is what's so great about the scriptures, you've got, this is an eyewitness account. So they came to Simon Peter and to John, taken the body. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. John never names himself. It's always the other disciple, or as he describes himself here in a moment. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. What is the point of that? It's an eyewitness account. The person who ran and who got there first is the person who's writing this. It's just a little aside. And it's almost like John Howe's writing decades later and Peter's probably gone home to glory at this point. And John writes this gospel and he emphasises the fact that he outran fatso Peter. <laughs> when John got to the tomb first, who got to the tomb first? Oh. He got there first, not Peter. No, no, no. I was there first. And I didn't go rushing in, but I looked in, it says in verse 5. He bent over, he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but I didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came huffing and puffing and came behind him. And he went straight into the tomb. Actually, Luke tells us, when Peter got to the tomb, he looks in, he stoops and he looks in and then he goes in. I want to investigate this, I'm going to examine this, I want up close and personal, I want to find out what's going on. That's Peter, true to his own character. He saw the strips of linen lying there, and this extra detail that only John gives us, no other gospel gives us this, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. That cloth was lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, the one who reached the tomb first... He went in and he saw and believed. Who got to the tomb first? I did. Who believed first? I did. Who did Jesus love? Me. How do you know? I told you. Nobody else told you. Just John. That's his perception. And then he says that wonderful verse, verse 9, they still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So Peter and John run to the tomb. When they get to the tomb, there is this difference, there is this very personal account, but when they get there, they find... I better stick to the script, but no. They find that the body's gone, but the tomb is not empty, as we will come to in a moment. Um, I think I did that. They went, and the women did that. Ah, normal burial. In a normal burial back in the first century, this is what we know from uh, other documents and, and so on, what they would normally do is wash the body. They would then um, care for it. They would place coins over the eyes because often what can happen with a dead body is the eyes can pop open, which would be a rather scary thing to have, wouldn't it? So they used to put coins on the eyes to weight it down a little bit. Then they would take a very long bandage, yards and yards and yards long, linen or whatever, and they would wrap. They'd wrap each, start at the feet, they'd wrap each leg, they'd wrap each arm like a mummy. And they'd wrap all around the, the middle up until about the collarbone. And they'd leave the shoulders um, open or uncovered. 
And then they would start wrapping around their head. They'd start above the eyebrows and they would go round and round and round and cover that. And then they would have a cover over their face. That's what they would normally do. And in the process of wrapping, they would be pouring in aloes and spices and myrrh and to stop the smell of the decomposition. A human body starts to decompose after about three, four days. Four days, according to John 11, because Lazarus is in the tomb. And on the fourth day, his sister, Mary or Martha, said, you know, by this time he's going to start to smell. And Jesus did not undergo any decomposition, as the scripture says, as God promised him. That's what would normally happen. They didn't have time. It was three o'clock on a Friday afternoon that Jesus died. And then the Jewish authorities went to Pilate and asked for the legs to be broken. So they came to break the legs. But when they came to the Lord Jesus, time is tick, 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 tick. When they came to the Lord Jesus, they saw that he was dead. So they stuck a spear on his side just to confirm it. Water and blood came out. Um, So then Jesus has died. Joseph goes to Pilate to request, can I have the body of the Lord Jesus? I want to give him a burial. Pilate has to confirm that Jesus is dead. So he has the centurion check. Confirm. Yes, he's died. We've put a spear on his side and everything else. They go back. Pilate then gives permission to Joseph to, you can take the body. He goes and gets Nicodemus. They take their stuff. When they take the Lord Jesus off the cross, he's got a crown of thorns. Not like a crown of thorns like that. And not like you've probably seen in pictures. Excuse me. It's not a crown of thorns that go around his head like this. It's more than likely like a helmet. It's a crown of thorns that they put on. And it went not just over the top of the head, but it's also through the back of the head. You want to know why and how we think that? You can come and ask me and I'll tell you the secret. It cost you 20 bucks. They didn't have time. Um, They put in place, they take the crown of thorns off. And before they transport the body from the cross to the tomb, they put a face cloth, what our Bible calls a face cloth. The Greek word is a sudarion. Sudarion. Say sudarion. That's the name of this thing that was around the head of the Lord Jesus because it would have been a mess. It would have been blood everywhere. And he's wounded, severely wounded. So to protect him in transport, they put this, whether it's leather or linen or whatever, but it's around, it's like a helmet again. It's tight and it's around his head. And my guess is, and I'm not an expert in this, but Gary Habermas is, they probably left that on. They didn't take it off. And when they didn't have time to wrap him, they probably put him in a long shroud, like the Shroud of Turin you may have heard of. Like that. And then they've quickly wrapped him or tightened him up somehow. Um, And the Bible tells us in John 19 that Nicodemus bought 75 pounds, 34, 35 kilograms of oils and perfumes and myrrh. 35 kilograms. That's the amount that you would have for the burial of a king. Well, he is a king. So he has, they try to honour him in his death. So the sedarion is still, that's what John refers to when he talks about um, the face cloth that's there, still tied up, still wrapped up, but it's by itself. It's no longer associated with the grave clothes. Then the evidence of the, that's normal burial, 
Yeah, I told you that. That's the sedarion. That's the face cloth. The Catholic Church would tell you that they have the sedarion that was on the head of the Lord Jesus. We can't be dogmatic and we can't be absolutely sure. But it's looking like it's probably true. I'll give you a reference in a moment. You need to go do your own research and I'll give you a website. You can look up articles and start reading it. The Shroud of Turin has become the most researched and investigated artefact of the ancient world. And if you look up YouTube and look at some of the lectures and if you look at this website, which is going to... Oh, here, there. TheShroudResearch.net. Look that up. You'll get 20, 30, 40, 50 articles all closely examined. You read it. You've got outstanding researchers. Let me say this and then I'll go back to the talk. Um, Gary Habermas, whom I mentioned already, is probably the world's leading expert when it comes to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He's written over 40 books on it. And he's now writing his magnum opus. He's writing his huge tome. It's four volumes. He's finished volume one and it runs at 1,500 pages. And he's not repeating much of what he has in the other 40 books. It's all the latest research and stuff that's going on. He is a walking, talking expert. He is impossible to listen to because he knows so much. And he wants to tell you this, but before I tell you that, I need to tell you that. And before I tell you that, I need to tell you that. And it just keeps going backwards and forward, backwards and forward. Backwards. So he'll take an hour to tell you what people could tell you in 10 minutes. Gary Habermas says this about the Shroud of Turin. He's examined it very closely. And he says he is about 80 to 90% reckons it's probably it. Can't be 100%, but he's 80, 90% of the way there. He then makes this very sensible comment. He said, if it is the Shroud of the Lord Jesus, if it is the burial cloth of the Lord Jesus with this image on it, um, then it adds a little bit to our understanding about Jesus. But if it's not the shroud of the Lord Jesus, then it doesn't take away anything from our Christian belief and faith. Our faith is not in Jesus because of the shroud. Our faith is in Jesus because of the truth of the scripture and his resurrection from the dead and that spiritual transaction that we've all uh, engaged in. So the shroud can help us, but we don't depend upon it. That's a very important to note. And the research will even take the sedarion from the, in Spain and they'll put it with the shroud and they'll match it. And Anyway, you look at the research and you can find out for yourself and form your own opinion of what you think. Um, I respect Gary Habermas a lot and I've got several of his books, I don't know of all of them, but I've read him. He's a very careful scholar. He's a true scholar. Um, so Peter and John have run to the tomb. Peter and John have both looked inside Peter sees and wonders. Luke, I think, tells us that he had questions. John tells us that when he saw, he believed. Whatever, it's not just that he believed the women's true, it's but he believed Jesus had risen. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, they still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. That's what that verse says. What that's saying is, John believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, but he hadn't yet seen it in the scriptures. Just like us. We have a Bible, don't we? And there are many things that we don't see. We come to see them. Well, so too John did, and so do the others as well. It means for us that we need to be better Bible students. 
Because the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, his death and his resurrection is in the Old Testament. And you've read it and you may not have seen it. But there are hints and clues everywhere. And that was the example, the uh, experience of the early church. That they started rereading their Bibles and they started looking carefully. And lo and behold, John, uh, Psalm 16 gets quoted lots of times in the New Testament about the resurrection of Jesus. You can look that up. But I found this one. I haven't, I'm not saying it's unique. I'm just saying, oh, I hadn't seen that before. You ever had that experience? Reading your Bible and you go, oh, I haven't seen that before. <clears throat> Exodus 28 verse 32 talks about the high priest and how the robe of the high priest was not torn. What does that remind you of? The robe of the Lord Jesus was not torn. There are little like clues, hints, and Jesus is our high priest. So the evidence from inside the tomb is the linen cloths that are there, the sidereon or the face cloth with this separate, there is nobody and the stone has moved away from it. They're the facts. That whatever theory you have, what happened on that Easter Sunday morning, you have to include all of those. Most of the alternate theories that people have, and there are about a dozen or more of them, people don't take all of the evidence, they select the evidence. And out of that, they then fabricate their own story. And one of the most common is, is the one that Mary herself mistakenly thought someone else took the body. It doesn't stack up to the evidence. Um, the evidence for the resurrection is probably the strongest um, that we have rather than any other historical event of 2,000 years ago. If you study it with an open mind, I would be reasonably confident that you'll be convinced. That's what happened to Frank Morrison, who wrote that magnificent book called Who Moved the Stone? I mention that book every year. I don't reread it every year, but I certainly read it every couple of years. He is a lawyer who set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. And in the process of investigating it, he examined, he took the Gospels as witnesses and he cross-examined them, and he ended up being convinced by the weight of the evidence that it led to him believing. And he wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone? Same happened for Lee Strobel in his book, Case for Christ. Ross Clifford, who was the principal of Morling College, the Baptist Theological College in New South Wales, where I went to college, he was a lawyer and he wrote a book. And it's all about the resurrection and it's different lawyers that he's collected articles from, all testifying to these similar sorts of experience. In fact, it comes back to a guy, Simon Greenleaf, who wrote, I think, three volumes, and I think it's still used today. Um, I forget the name of it exactly, but it's about how to use evidence, what, what constitutes appropriate evidence in a court of law. And he wrote the foundation for that. He did the same thing. On the basis of that, examined the evidence, and he became convinced. Well, that's the external evidence, the evidence from the grave. And so let me encourage you, look up YouTube, Look up Gary Habermas, look up that crowd research thing and do your own research. What's the evidence um, from the experience in the garden? Mary herself. We often talk about that the tomb was empty. I mean, when we say that, what we are referring to, of course, is there was no body. But it wasn't technically empty and it was a very busy tomb and it has been probably ever since. On that day, not only did the women go to the tomb, inside it, so did Mary Magdalene eventually, so did Peter and John, so did the angels were there and undoubtedly Joseph must have come back at some point, it was his tomb and so would have others have come to visit it 
And I haven't been, but Pastor Charlie's been to Jerusalem and he's visited the garden tomb. Uh, you can have a chat to him about whether it's the real one or not. Um, so it's a very busy site and significant because if it didn't happen, all you had to do was go a couple of minutes outside of Jerusalem and have a look at the tomb and find the body. But they don't do it because the body wasn't there, it's risen. The two angels who are inside when Mary goes inside, she sees the angels and it's, it's just interesting when, how you read this. Um, she was weeping, she bent over, she went in, she saw the two angels in white seated where Jesus' body, one at the head, one at the foot. Even that's interesting. John's giving us a clue. And if you've got eyes to see it, where do you know in the scriptures where there are two angels sitting on a mercy seat? Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament in the temple was the place where God would meet with people. The tomb of the Lord Jesus is the mercy seat. It's where his blood was shed. The two angels are sitting there for that position. And it's declaring to us now, this is where God meets with people through the death of Jesus and through his resurrection. The Old Testament is a illustration pointing forward to this reality and the angels are sitting there. And then it's the tone of their voice. You've got a woman in a cemetery crying and they say, woman, why are you crying? Or from an earthly point of view, that would be a silly thing to do, wouldn't it? But the angels know something. And they don't understand that she doesn't know. So their tone to her, I think, is one of surprise. Why are you crying? On a day like this, you should be singing, dancing and shouting. Why are you crying? He's risen. They don't get to say that, of course, to her. This conversation is going to be interrupted. She answers them. She's not fussed. If you saw two angels and they were talking to you, what would you do? Well, remember, Mary had some pretty deep spiritual experiences. She had seven demons in her, Luke chapter 8, and Jesus cast the seven demons out. She knows there's a spirit world. She knows there's good and bad spirits, so she's not phased by two good angels, two good spirits. And the tone is, why are you crying? And before she can go on to ask uh, any deeper questions, she answers them. They have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. And at this, verse 14 says, she turned around. She's just answered them. Now, my guess is, what are they doing? She's, they're there and she comes in and she's talking to them, I guess, looking at them. And suddenly she turns. Why does she turn? Well, either the angels looked past her you know when you're talking to somebody and they look past you, it makes you want to go, what are you looking at? It's something like that. Or Jesus behind her has made a noise. Or something. Something has disturbed her, it made her turn. You know, just look, glanced over her shoulder. She's still inside the tomb when that happens. But the conversation is terminated. Because when she sees somebody else out there and she thinks, that's the gardener. She's been weeping. She's tired. She's stressed. It's well, it's just the beginning of the day, so I don't know what the light was like in that part of the world, but she doesn't recognise Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener. And so she's trying to put this together. If they didn't take him, did you take him? 
the gardener in the cemetery, of course, you must be the one who um, would know where he is. If you tell me, listen to this, if you tell me where he is, I'll come and I'll take him away. I think I'm a little bit bigger than the Lord Jesus. If the Shroud of Turin is correct, he was about my height. Five foot eleven to six foot one. Had red hair? No, no. He was about that height. Weighed about 70 to 80 kilos. Add the 100 pounds of, or 75 pounds of spices and aloes and all of that that had been put on him. She just thinks that he's still wrapped up. She doesn't know he's alive. She says, if you took him away, tell me where he is and I will take him away. She's a woman. And she's going to lift a man, a corpse. You're not thinking. She's just overcome with emotion and a desire to finish the job that she had come to do. Of course, she would need help. But it's not what she says. She says, if you've taken him away, tell me where he is, where you've laid him, so I can come and take him. Where's she going to take him? Maybe back to the tomb. Then Jesus speaks to her in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language that Jesus normally used, and particularly at the north in Galilee. And he says to her, in our Bibles it's Mary. In Aramaic it's Miriam. And it's the tone of his voice and it's the way he said it. He uses her native name in her native language to get her attention. And she answers, and John tells us this, and she answers in Aramaic, not Rabbi, Rabboni, my teacher. It's more affectionate, it's closer. And then Jesus says to her, she must have, she's out of the tomb, she realises it's Jesus when he says her name, and he, she says, my teacher, Rabboni, and she must run to him. I don't know if she kneels, and she anyway, she grabs him. I've always sort of imagined that she's grabbing him, you know, standing up. It's quite possible that she's knelt in honour. She's grabbed him around the knees, around the ankles. And she's grabbed hold of tight. She's been watching the NRL on Friday nights and she knows how to tackle. And Jesus says to her, it's not don't touch me, it's stop clinging to me. I have not yet ascended to my father and to your father. I have not yet ascended. What does he mean by that? Some people think there's a double ascension, that Jesus was going to ascend on Resurrection Sunday. I don't think that's the case. My view is what Jesus is saying to Mary is, you don't need to hang on to me and never let go because you'll see me again. I'm not leaving yet. I will be ascending 40 days time, but you'll see me again. So there's no need for you to grab a hold and not let go. And then he sends her. Go, and this is, I think, beautiful for us. Um, don't hang on to me. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending. Um, to my father and your father. To my God and your God. Brothers family. Jesus does four things with Mary. I just need to be very, very quick with this. Um, and he does the same four things with us in order to help us to grow and to mature in our relationship with him. Firstly, he gets her to move from feelings 
to thinking. He's transferring her. She's driven by emotion and she's there out of her love and deep devotion for Jesus. And he wants her to stop and to start thinking about what's going on. And he, begin, he does that by simply asking her the question. Why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? Questions have a way of sharpening our mind and helping us not focus on our tears or our emotions, but on, it engages the mind and we start to think about how we're going to answer that. He wants her to move from feeling to thinking. Secondly, he wants her to move from ignorance to knowing him. That's why he calls her by the name, Miriam. She didn't know who it was, thought it was the gardener. Miriam, oh, I now know it's you. Thirdly, he wants her to move from sense to faith. From the way things are in the present or the past into the way they will be in the future. Not to be driven by our senses, but in fact to be driven by our trust in him. And then thirdly, the Lord Jesus wants to move her and us from self to others. He wants us to move from feelings to thinking. He wants us to move from, um, what did I say? From sense to faith. That was the third one. What was the second one? That. And if you look at it in this order, from thinking to, I can't remember that one. And then feeling, no, not feeling. Oh, it's up here. Ignorance to knowing. He wants us to move to thinking, to knowing, to trusting, and then to focus on others. The first three are us. Thinking, knowing, trusting, and then go and tell others. That's what he does with Mary. He basically says to us, as he does in the next chapter, to Peter, if you love me, love one another. They go together, like the cross, the vertical and the horizontal, just like in master life. To love others, to love those on the inside of the church and to love others on the outside of the church, to love people. Who can you tell? Well, anyone you love, anyone who is close to you, anyone who um, you're interested in, that you're keen for them to be forgiven and saved. And it's not forcing it, because Mary goes. Mary the mourner becomes Mary the missionary. She, in fact, becomes the apostle to the apostles. That's how the Eastern Church describes Mary Magdalene. She is sent by Jesus to the apostles. Go and tell my brothers, my family. And that's the first time he uses that expression. And Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. My question to you is, do you see? In verse 8, it says that John went in, he saw and believed. In verse 18, it says, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. Do you see? Do you understand? Because he rose, we certainly have a story to tell. Because he rose, God is just. Because he rose, the resurrection is true, that he is God's son. The, vind the resurrection vindicates his teaching. 
because of the resurrection, the cross um, establishes for us that our sins are completely paid for. We are debt free. We are accepted by God as we are accepted, as we accept Jesus. That Satan is defeated, that death is vanquished, and that God has started the new creation. Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation. And he sends us. He's going to ascend and return to the Father. But in the process of him ascending, he sends us. We now take his place. We are his body, the church. And we bring his peace. Whenever Jesus met the disciples from this point on, he often said to them, Shalom, peace. We take his place in this world now and we bring his peace. The Lord Jesus never said for the world to come to church. It's good that they do. It's good that you do. That's helpful. It's good to sit uh, amongst God's people and it's good to have God's word taught to you and it's good to learn and to sing truths about him. It's a good thing to do. But the Lord Jesus never commanded the world to come to church. He commanded his church to go to the world, into our relationships. And we are to represent him and to present him naturally, not forcefully, not falsely, just in normal everyday conversation. And then God opens the door to have the courage to step through it. Rhonda and I are going to a wedding at the end of May and the other day we went down to Flight Centre and we booked our tickets and so on. And the young girl there who was serving us, she just simply said, this was on a Monday, she simply said to us, how was your weekend? I couldn't remember what we did on the Saturday. Uh, I said, it, I don't know, relaxing. I said, Sunday, went to church, Sunday afternoon, had family and kids around. Oh, what church do you go to? told her. Turns out she used to go to church. Turns out she used to be a youth leader. Turns out she is now a prodigal. She is a long way from God. But God still loves her. She's a lovely, lovely girl. Lovely. And she's not married, but she's living with a guy who obviously cares for her and loves her. And so I said to her, I'm not going to say her name, but I said, um, if ever you want to get married, and she said, well, it's not up to me, it's up to him. She's waiting for him to ask. That's something to ask, pray for. Um, she said, I said, if you get around to getting married, come and see me. I'll do it for nothing. She said, really? Because next to us, there was another girl, and she's getting married, and she's going through a marriage celebrant. And if you don't know, but a marriage celebrant, they charge like wounded bulls. They charge hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Pastor Charlie charges 500, I only charge four. <laughs> it's gone up. No, we don't charge at all. It's part of our ministry. But marriage celebrants, they charge like wounded bulls. Anyway, that's why she was delighted, so pray for her. You're not getting her name, but God knows her name. We take his place and we bring his peace. And it's just a normal conversation. What's God going to do? I don't know. But I hope she finds her way back into a loving relationship with the one who loves her, Jesus. Oh, can you read that? I wrote this a reflection. This is now the end. <clears throat> I am a nobody. 
sent by somebody to tell anybody that everybody is greatly loved and can be fully forgiven and completely restored. That includes you. Because somebody died for everybody and that somebody was raised to new life so that nobody need be lost and anybody who believes will be saved, forgiven and restored to the great delight of that somebody. Happy Easter, everybody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today is a day to celebrate because today we remember, as we do each Sunday, but on this Easter Sunday, that your Son, our Saviour and Lord, rose from the dead, conquering death, defeating Satan, uh, removing sin's penalty, and then sends forth his Spirit into us that we might walk with him, live with him, and become like him and to represent him until he takes us home. Lord, fill us with your spirit and help us to learn and reflect from this evidence, both inside the tomb and also in the garden. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name.